It's 5 a.m. on the 30th of June, 1860. Road Hill House, the home of the Kent family in the village of Road in Wiltshire, is slowly waking up. In the children's nursery on the first floor, 22-year-old nursemaid Elizabeth Goff can hear the baby fidget in the cot next to her bed. Little Eveline seems restless, so Goff sits up on her knees to see what the matter is. The child has wriggled out from under her blanket and is beginning to thrash about as if she's going to wake up at any moment. To buy herself a few more minutes in bed, Goff leans over and puts the blanket back in place. The baby settles. Goff sighs with relief. Her work starts the moment the children wake and doesn't stop until they're fast asleep each night. Much as she loves her three charges, one-year-old Eveline, three-year-old Savile, and five-year-old Mary Amelia, the moments she has to herself are precious. And Mrs. Kent is pregnant again. Another month and Goff will have even more work to do. Well, she'll cross that bridge when she comes to it. Last night, Goff had been dead to the world the moment her head hit the pillow. Some nights it gets her like that. The exhaustion just hits. But no matter how well she's slept, the day always starts too early. It feels like a luxury just to be awake in bed, even if it is five o'clock in the morning. But Goff is conscientious. The duties of the day ahead start to nag at her. She checks on little Savile, only to see that his cot is empty. The bedclothes have been neatly folded back, and there's a slight impression in the pillow where his head has lain. Goff is not unduly worried. Savile is usually a deep sleeper, but he hadn't been well yesterday and had to be given a pill before going to bed. Perhaps he cried out in the night. Mrs. Kent must have heard and taken her son back into her own room so that he didn't disturb the baby. Savile's older sister, Mary Amelia, sleeps in a cot in her parents' room all the time. Goff settles back in bed to doze. She can hear the muted sounds of the house stirring. Holcomb, the gardener, starts work at five and doesn't exactly tiptoe about. His attitude seems to be, if I'm awake, everyone else can be. About an hour later, Goff rouses herself from an anxiety dream. She looks across at Savile's still empty cot. Goff gets out of bed and dresses, neatly folding away her nightdress. She sits on her bed to read a passage from her Bible, as she does every morning. A few minutes later, she kneels to say her prayers, thanking the Lord for whatever gifts he may bring her this day, and asking him to protect those who are placed in her care. She ends with the Lord's Prayer, speaking the final words in a soft whisper so as not to wake the still sleeping baby. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The time by the nursery clock is quarter to seven. Goff crosses the short distance to Mr. and Mrs. Kent's door. She doesn't really want to wake Mrs. Kent, especially as she'd obviously been disturbed in the night by Savile's crying. She probably blames Goff for that. At eight months pregnant, her mistress is finding it hard to sleep at the moment, which makes her even more irritable than usual. So when there's no answer to her tentative knock, 
Goff doesn't press it. Back in the nursery, baby Eveline is awake. Goff lifts her out of her cot and dresses her. As Goff is making her own bed, the assistant nursemaid, Emily Dole, comes in carrying the tin bath for the children. Dole takes the bath into the dressing room before going back downstairs to fetch water. Dole is not one of the live-in servants, though she still works 12-hour days, starting at 7 each morning. She's 14 years old. It's gone 7 o'clock now. Goff decides she really has to get the other children from their parents' room for their morning bath. This time, she knocks more firmly. The heavily pregnant Mrs. Kent sighs wearily as she opens the door in her dressing gown. Her manner is impatient, though Goff also sees anxiety in her mistress's eyes. Her first child had been delivered stillborn. As her due date approaches, Mary Kent must worry that the same could happen again. Or worse, that something may happen to her. At 40 years of age, she is not the youngest of mothers, in a period when the risks of maternal death from childbirth were far higher than they are today. The more children you have, the more chance something will go wrong. At least Goff can ease some of her mistress's cares by looking after the little ones she has already. Is Master Savile with you? With me? Certainly not. The nursemaid's brow furrows in confusion. It hasn't occurred to Goff to worry at all before now. But suddenly, a cold dread grips her heart. He is not in the nursery, ma'am. Mrs. Kent pushes past Goff and rushes into the nursery to be confronted by Savile's empty cot. By now, her husband Samuel Kent is awake and has come to the door of the bedroom to see what all the fuss is about. Nineteen years Mary's senior, Samuel has four children from his previous marriage who all sleep on the floor above in the servants' quarters. Mary Ann and Elizabeth, who are the eldest at 29 and 28 respectively, share a bedroom, while 16-year-old Constance and 14-year-old William have rooms of their own. Samuel has the preoccupied air of a man weighed down by worries. He's not popular in the neighborhood because of his work as a sub-factory inspector, not to mention various disputes with the cottagers whose homes border his land. Money is tight, too. Samuel is desperate for promotion to full factory inspector, as the rise in salary will make running this large household a little easier. Another baby on the way will only add to his woes. Savile is missing, Mary tells her husband, her voice rising in panic. Samuel must be still half asleep. He doesn't quite take in the full meaning of his wife's words. You had better see where he is, he answers distractedly. He has enough on his mind as it is. And then suddenly, he sees the fear in his wife's expression and understands the gravity of the situation. Savile, sweet, good-natured Savile, is missing. It's wrong to have favourites amongst your children, but everyone knows that Savile is Mary's pet. It would break her heart if anything had happened to the child. I'm John Hopkins, 
and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary Criminal Investigation Department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A frantic search for Savile follows. In Mary Kent's words, I was here, there, and everywhere looking for him. We were all in such a state of bewilderment, going backwards and forwards from room to room. The local law enforcement officers, PC Urch and Parish Constable Morgan, are sent for. This is a period of transition in policing in Britain, and the two men represent both the new and the old system, with the professional policeman Urch and the volunteer Morgan, whose full-time occupation is as a baker. They find a potential clue to Savile's whereabouts in the drawing room. Housemaid Sarah Cox swears she fastened the heavy sash window and shutters the night before. But one of the windows and its shutters are found open, as is the door to the drawing room, which Cox says she also locked. At first sight, it looks like Savile has been abducted, with whoever took him leaving through the drawing room window. But if Savile's abductor is an outsider, it is unclear how they got in, as Samuel Kent himself secured the house before going to bed. A distraught Samuel tells the gardeners that young Master Savile has been lost, stolen and carried away. He then drives his carriage to Trowbridge, about five miles away, to ask for the help of Superintendent John Foley of the Wiltshire Constabulary. The hunt for the missing boy moves outside. Two neighbours join in 
William Nutt, a shoemaker who lives in a dilapidated cottage next to Roadhill House, and Thomas Benger, a local dairy farmer. Nutt and Benger search the shrubbery near the house. Inside the shrubbery is an outbuilding, the servant's privy or toilet. They see the blood on the floor as they push open the door. A small amount, but enough to make the men uneasy. Get a light, William, says Benga. The outdoor privy is not plumbed in like a modern toilet. It's essentially a hole over a cesspit, although Samuel has recently installed a sloping splashboard two feet below the seat. It helps to minimise the stink rising off the accumulated waste below. Benga lifts the lid and peers in, his eyes gradually adapting to the deep gloom. He will later describe the moment as follows. By steadily looking down, I could see better and saw a something like clothing below. He reaches in and pulls out a blood-stained blanket. Savile's blanket. Now he sees it. The child's body lying on its side on the splashboard, head down in the privy. He hears footsteps behind him and the outbuilding suddenly fills with a flickering glow as Nut returns holding a candle. Oh, William, here it is, says Benga. Benga lifts the body out of its filthy resting place. As he does so, the head falls back, revealing a deep cut through the neck. There is blood all over his face. Benger notices dark patches around the child's mouth and eyes, but other than that, Savile looks quite peaceful. His eyes are closed. With nuts walking solemnly behind him, Benger carries Savile's little body back to the house and lays him out on the kitchen table. The two older sisters, Marianne and Elizabeth, come in, one of them carrying baby Evelyn. At the sight of their half-brother covered in blood and excrement, the two women almost faint. They have to be supported as they stagger from the room. The family keep the news that Savile is dead from his mother until Samuel returns. When she is told, she says, Someone in the house has done it. At some time between nine and ten that morning, Superintendent Foley arrives from Trowbridge to begin his investigation into the death of James Savile Kent, known to his family as Savile. He's taken straight away to the crime scene, where he conducts a thorough examination of the privy. There he finds a piece of flannel, which he identifies as a breast flannel, a type of pad worn inside the corset by some women in this period. The flannel has fresh blood on it, as well as dirt from the privy. Superintendent Foley is convinced that he has found a vital clue to the identity of the murderer. Foley can find no trace of the murder weapon, but Stephen Millett, one of the other neighbours who joined in the search for Savile, shows the superintendent a blood-stained piece of newspaper he found lying on the ground just outside the privy. The scrap of paper is folded, and looks like it could have been used to wipe clean a blade. It's not clear what paper it has been torn out of, but it is not thought to be any of the papers that Mr. Kent takes. Is this proof that Savile's murderer is an outsider? 
Elizabeth Goff draws Foley's attention to a set of footprints that she has spotted on a white rug in the drawing room. They are quickly dismissed as irrelevant when they are found to have come from P.C. Urch's hobnailed boots. Forensic science is in its infancy. Even so, the local police show themselves to be remarkably incompetent in preserving the integrity of a potential crime scene. Their methods don't exactly inspire confidence. According to one account, Samuel Kent begged that a detective might be sent from London, a course which would have been adopted but for the representation of Superintendent Foley, who said it was unnecessary and might be productive of difficulty and disappointment. Two days later, on Monday the 2nd of July, the coroner's inquest into Savile's death begins at the Red Line pub in Road. A number of witnesses are called, including Elizabeth Goff, Sarah Cox, and the two men who found the body, Thomas Benger and William Nutt. Stephen Millett also gives evidence, as well as Superintendent Foley. Joshua Parson, the surgeon who examined the body, describes Savile's wounds. The throat was cut to the bone by some sharp instrument. A single, clean cut without being jagged. It severed the skin, all the blood vessels and the nerves. He also remarks on two small cuts on Savile's left hand and a deep stab wound in the boy's chest, which, in his opinion, could not have been done with a razor. However, it's worth remembering that Parsons is not a forensic pathologist in the modern sense. He is the Kent's family doctor. Parsons' view is that the amount of blood found in the privy, about three and a half pints according to one estimate, is less than he would expect from a child's throat being cut. But Superintendent Foley testifies that no other bloodstains were found anywhere else, suggesting that Savile's fatal wounds were inflicted in the place where his body was left. The coroner, George Sylvester, proposes to close the inquest without hearing from either Mr. and Mrs. Kent or any of the older children, in order, as he says, to spare the family any further pain. It is clearly inconceivable to him that anyone from such a respectable middle-class family could have had anything to do with this horrific murder. But the jury disagrees, giving voice to a resentment that is building in the village against the Kents. Some ugly rumours are circulating, particularly concerning Constance and William Kent. In one account, the two youngest children from Samuel's first marriage were spoken of loudly as being the murderers. As a compromise, the two adolescents are questioned at home. In a quiet, subdued tone, Constance makes her sworn statement. I knew nothing whatever of his death until he was found. I did not hear anything during the night. I slept soundly. According to newspaper reports, she betrays no emotion throughout keeping her eyes fixed on the ground. In contrast, William meets the coroner's eye and gives his statement with genuine feeling, saying, I knew nothing, nor heard anything of this circumstance till the morning. I wish I had. The deceased was a great favourite with all. Overall, their two statements are remarkably similar. 
Both use exactly the same phrase. I know nothing whatever of the murder. The coroner concludes, It is the most mysterious and extraordinary murder that has ever been committed, to my knowledge. The jury returns an open verdict, though one juror speaks for many when he tells the coroner, There is a strong suspicion on my mind. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There is one curious footnote to the inquest. After it is closed, Dr. Parsons expresses the opinion that the child may have been partially suffocated, citing the black mark around Savile's mouth, which he believes was caused by someone placing their hand over his mouth to stifle his cries. This is something that he failed to mention, both in his post-mortem examination and in his evidence to the coroner. It's extremely unprofessional and only causes confusion and speculation. Besides, he's wrong. It will be later proven that the dark patches on Savile's face are caused by post-mortem hypostasis. In other words, by blood settling after death. The incident shows just how hard it is to get to the truth in the 19th century, before forensic pathology has fully developed as a medical specialism. Arguably, the most important part of any murder investigation is the examination of the victim's body. In this case, it's left to a generalist with very little experience and even less idea what he's looking for. Superintendent Foley continues his investigations, focusing on the breast flannel found in the privy. In an experiment reminiscent of Cinderella's glass shoe, Foley instructs Eliza Dallimore, the wife of a Trowbridge police officer, to try the flannel, now freshly laundered, on the female servants who live at Road Hill House. That is to say, Elizabeth Goff, Sarah Cox, and Sarah Kerslake, the cook. The breast flannel is too small for Cox and Kerslake, but it fits Goff. However, as she points out, that's no reason that I should have done the murder. Significantly, Superintendent Foley does not ask Mrs. Dallimore to try the flannel on Constance or any of the women of the Kent family. The possibility that one of them might have killed Savile is obviously too horrific to contemplate. The assumption is that it must have been one of the servants. And now the prime suspect is Elizabeth Goff. Goff has come under suspicion from the outset for the simple reason 
that she was sleeping in the same room as Sava when he was taken. Her version of events is picked apart. Why did she take so long to raise the alarm once she noticed Sava was not in his cot? Is it really possible that an intruder could have come into the nursery and taken Saville without waking the nursemaid? A salacious theory is put forward to explain Goff's motive for the crime. The nursemaid must have had a lover who she was entertaining in her bed that night. The sounds of the couple's lovemaking woke Saville. The little boy was known to be something of a telltale, so naturally he had to be silenced. The guilty couple suffocated him in his cot, with the other wounds being inflicted post-mortem in the privy to confuse the police. Dr. Parsons' mistaken opinion has a lot to answer for. As for the identity of her mysterious lover, some believe it's none other than Samuel Kent himself. It's unlikely that Superintendent Foley seriously entertains this aspect of the theory. According to Village Gossip, another candidate for Goff's lover is the shoemaker William Nutt, a 36-year-old father of six described in one newspaper as a strange-looking fellow, sallow, thin and bony, with a receding forehead and a cast in one eye. What the attractive 22-year-old is doing with such a man is never explained. And why would she risk her position at Roadhill House in such a flagrantly dangerous way? Her record is blameless. After her initial examination by the police on the first day, she left everyone with the impression that she was a person of considerable intelligence and perfectly free from all guilt or complicity, according to a friend of the family who was present. Not only that, Samuel and Mary Kent continued to trust Goff with the care of their other children. Would they really do that if they thought she had killed Saville? And yet, the breast flannel is her size. On Tuesday the 10th of July, magistrates instruct the police to arrest Elizabeth Goff. The Bath Chronicle reports, on being told that she would be detained for the present, she fell senseless to the ground. Superintendent Foley takes Goff to Trowbridge, where she is held at the police station house in the custody of Eliza Dallimore and her husband, P.C. Dallimore. While at the station, Goff tells Foley she is sure Constance is not the murderer. Was it you? asks Foley. No, says Goff. The case is generating acres of newsprint, much of it critical of the local police and their unsophisticated as well as unproductive methods. The Somerset and Wilts Journal calls for the best detective talent in the country to be engaged. In response, one of the local magistrates puts in a formal request for a detective from Scotland Yard to be sent to help the Wiltshire police. The man chosen to answer that call is Inspector Jonathan Witcher. Born in 1814, Jonathan, or Jack Witcher, is the son of a market gardener from Camberwell, in those days a rural village south of London. 
Witcher joined the Metropolitan Police in 1837 as a police constable. Previously a labourer, his working-class background is typical of those recruited into the recently established force. From the start of his career, Witcher demonstrates a talent for undercover policing, which is recognised in 1842 when he is headhunted for a new unit to form part of A Division Whitehall. The detective police, as they are known, operate out of a station near Trafalgar Square. The station is named after the street the building backs onto, Scotland Yard. The new job comes with a promotion to sergeant. Witcher is one of eight plain-clothed officers making up the controversial new department. Controversial because the British public at the time is highly suspicious of the whole idea of detectives. Policemen who don't identify themselves as such are seen as somehow sneaky and underhand. It's the kind of thing the French police do. English society endures no spy, writes one commentator, while the Times thunders, there will always be something repugnant in the bare idea of espionage. At the same time, writers and readers are clearly fascinated by this new breed of men. The public can't get enough of their exploits, and a new genre of literature springs up around them. One of the writers to champion the detectives is Charles Dickens, who, in 1850, invites seven of the eight original Scotland Yard detectives in for a friendly chat over brandy and cigars. Witcher is one of those present, though in his account of the meeting, Dickens changes his name to Witcham. That may be a pun on the almost supernatural power that the detective seems to wield over wrongdoers, testament to his uncanny ability to track them down and bring them in. Dickens sketches a pen portrait of Witcher, whom he describes as shorter and thicker set than his fellows. Witcher entered the police at the minimum height requirement of five feet eight inches. In Dickens' words, he is marked with the smallpox, has something of a reserved and thoughtful air as if he were engaged in deep arithmetical calculations. Another writer, William Henry Wills, records an encounter with Witcher describing him as a plain, honest-looking fellow with nothing formidable in his appearance or dreadful in his countenance. In fact, Wills does not at first realize that Witcher is a police detective, exactly the effect that Witcher is aiming for. Despite his nondescript appearance, Witcher is a talented copper. In fact, his appearance is probably his greatest weapon, as it allows him to mingle with the crowd and observe. He is highly regarded by his peers. The Prince of Detectives, one of his colleagues calls him, and feared by criminals. He specializes in tackling swell mobsmen, pickpockets and conmen who dress as upper-class toffs. He has his catchphrases too. As sure as I'm alive, and that'll do. Witcher is the model for a famous fictional detective, Sergeant Cuff, in Wilkie Collins' novel The Moonstone. Cuff shares Witcher's powers of observation, his probing psychological insights and enigmatic manner, 
not to mention his love of gardening. In fact, the novel borrows a number of features from the Road Hill House case, though it does make some significant changes. At the time of Savile's murder, Witcher is 45 years old, still with a full head of thick brown hair. He has cultivated an unassuming expression and a distracted air. From time to time, a faint, quizzical smile plays on his lips. But the gaze from his blue eyes is penetrating. Think an English Columbo, dressed in Victorian clothes. When Witcher arrives at the village of Road on Monday the 16th of July, 1860, he is faced with a classic whodunit. The police, villagers and newspapers all agree that the murderer is someone who lives in the house. If you accept this, then there are nine suspects. Savile's parents, Samuel and Mary Kent, his half-siblings, Mary Ann, Elizabeth, Constance and William, and the three live-in servants, Elizabeth Goff, Sarah Cox and Sarah Kerslake. Understandably, the Kents dispute this view of the case. Joseph Stapleton is a Trowbridge doctor close to the family. In his History of the Murder, published the following year, he writes, The opinion of every member of the family is that the murder was done by some person or persons outside the house. Stapleton goes on. Between the police and the family, consequently, an early difference of opinion and feeling existed. But remember what Mary cried out when she first was told of her son's death. Someone in the house has done it. Of course, she was in shock then. She didn't know what she was saying. Or rather, she hadn't thought through the implications of that statement. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice though, they really mean flavor. Like in your face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either, but it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice, anything but subtle. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Samuel casts suspicion on a former nursemaid who had left under a cloud, threatening to take revenge on the family. The police check out this potential lead and find that the woman in question has a solid alibi. Samuel also points the finger at his neighbours. He had recently built a high fence to preserve his family's privacy and keep poachers off his land. The move did not go down well with the occupants of Cottage Corner, a cluster of tumble-down hovels next to Road Hill House. Samuel has also stopped the villagers from fishing in a stretch of the river that runs through his property and recently prosecuted a local man for some unspecified offence. 
his high-handed behavior causes bad feeling. The Kent's children and servants often suffer abuse from neighborhood children while they're out walking. But there's a big difference between shouting insults and murdering a little boy. Samuel's accusations are looked into. Even family friend Joseph Stapleton concedes, every inquiry failed to attach to any one of these cottages the slightest taint of suspicion. If anything, since Savile's death, the animosity towards the family has increased and is threatening to turn nasty. The Bath Chronicle reports, there is a very strong feeling amongst the lower class of inhabitants in the village against Mr. Kent's family. The poor little innocent, the victim of this dark assassination, is spoken of in terms of much endearment. The women speak of him with tears in their eyes. The clear implication is that the villagers hold the Kent family, or someone within it, responsible for Savile's death. Inspector Witcher enters a story a full two weeks after the crime has been committed. By now, Savile's body lies in the family vaults at the nearby village of East Coulston. Evidence that could lead to his killer has been removed or even destroyed. The murderer is either long gone or has had plenty of chance to cover their tracks. The crime scene has been well and truly contaminated, and not just by P.C. Urch's hobnails. You could say, Witcher has his work cut out. Superintendent Foley escorts Inspector Witcher to the Temperance Hall in Road, where local magistrates are holding an inquiry into Savile's death. The inquiry is held behind closed doors, possibly because feelings in the village are running so high. Today, they are scheduled to question Elizabeth Goff, Foley's prime suspect. We can only imagine what Foley must be thinking as he makes plight small talk with a man from Scotland Yard. After all, he is always advised against asking for outside help. It wouldn't be surprising if he resents the intrusion of the celebrated London detective, sent to teach him and his men a few lessons in the art of criminal investigation. In fact, Witcher will show himself to be sensitive to the feelings of the Wiltshire force. As far as he's concerned, he's been given a thankless task. But he can sense Foley trying to steer him in a certain direction, which makes him all the more determined to do things his own way. For him, that means following the evidence wherever it leads, without fear or favor. Taking a seat at the back of the magistrate's inquiry is a good opportunity to familiarize himself with the details of the case. It's also a chance to form his own impressions of the young woman Foley has accused of Savile's murder. Witcher has encountered every kind of criminal in his career so far. Pickpockets, housebreakers, counterfeiters, and, yes, murderers. He reckons he's a pretty good judge of character. He believes he can generally tell when someone is lying, or when they're hiding a guilty secret. The strain that shows on Elizabeth Goff's face is obvious, but for Witcher, it's not a sign of her guilt. Wouldn't everyone feel under pressure if they'd been accused of such a serious crime? 
Witcher is impressed by Goff's modest demeanour and her straightforward answers to the magistrate's questions. It seems perfectly reasonable to him that the girl should have thought Savile was in his mother's bedroom when she first noticed him missing. Coming from a working-class background himself, he can well believe she was so exhausted from her day's work that she failed to wake up when an intruder came into the nursery in the middle of the night. As for the rumours he's heard about a mysterious lover, he shakes his head in disbelief. Witcher is convinced that Goff is not Savile's killer. The magistrates apparently agree. Goff is freed at one o'clock that day. She immediately returns to Road Hill House, where Mrs. Kent's baby is due at any time. The family are happy to have her back, a clear enough indication that they don't suspect her of having anything to do with Savile's death. Superintendent Foley's suspicion of Goff was based largely on the breast flannel he found in the privy. For Inspector Witcher, it's another item of female clothing that provokes his interest. A nightdress. Every week, the Kent family send their washing to Hester Holly, a laundress who lives in the village. The details of the weekly laundry are entered in a notebook, which is sent along with the baskets of washing. On the 2nd of July, the first washing day after the murder, Mrs. Holly notices a discrepancy between the laundry book and the washing in the baskets her daughter Martha fetches from Roadhill House. One item is missing. A nightdress belonging to Constance Kent, Savile's 16-year-old half-sister. For whatever reason, Mrs. Holly fails to mention the missing nightdress when she is questioned by the police. But she later sends word to the big house, telling them about the missing item and the fact she had kept quiet about it to the police. At Roadhill House, Mary speaks to the housemaid, Sarah Cox, and Mary Ann, Samuel's eldest daughter from his first marriage, who it seems is expected to help Cox with a laundry. They are both certain that there were three nightdresses in that week's wash, one of which was Constance's. Mrs. Holly is equally certain that there were only two, and that Constance's was the missing one. She goes to the house herself to try and clear the matter up, only to be threatened by Samuel with prosecution if she does not produce the nightdress within 48 hours. In her own words, Samuel speaks to her not as a gentleman would. For Inspector Witcher, this missing nightdress holds the key to the whole mystery. The clue has been there all the time, but Superintendent Foley has refused to consider it out of deference for the family in the big house. He is preferred to believe that the laundress has lost, or even stolen, the property of a valued customer, rather than contemplate the alternative, that the nightdress is missing because it provides evidence that could incriminate a member of the Kent family. But Inspector Witcher has always been a man to think the unthinkable. And soon after his arrival in Road, he is beginning to think that a well-brought-up, middle-class girl may be a murderer. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. 
Inspector Witcher builds his case against Constance Kent, but the vital clue of a missing nightdress continues to elude him. Bizarre details from Constance's past come to light. Her school friends paint a picture of a less-than-loving stepdaughter. Rumours about madness in the family begin to spread. Could Constance have inherited her dead mother's mental health problems? Tensions increase between Witcher and the local police over the direction he's taking the investigation, and a sensational trial leaves Witcher's reputation in tatters. Will the truth ever be revealed? Or will the dark secrets lurking within the heart of a respectable Victorian family remain forever hidden? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Buaro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.